Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. John McAdam, welcome to Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcast. Before we get rolling with part two of the 1990 Pro Wrestling Awards, I want to invite all of you to follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam and follow the guy who is wrestling guys fighting in his avatar. I also want to encourage you, if you have not already, to join our Facebook group. Just put in Stick to Wrestling and do a search. And without further ado, part two of the 1990 Wrestling Awards with John Muse. Here we go. Wrestling color commentators became big in the 1980s. A lot of the time before that, I mean, most of the shows I saw were guys going on their own. Gordon Soley was by himself in Florida forever. Uh, Roddy, Roddy Piper joined him in 1981 in Georgia. Before that, it was only all by himself. Uh, Vince went a long time before having a color commentator. Then they brought in Bruno Sammartino and then Pat Patterson. Uh, Sammartino came back in 78. So he, Vince McMahon was by himself from the time Antonino Rocca died until Bruno came back as a commentator. And then by the end of the 80s, early 90s, they were commonplace. In your opinion, John, who was the best color commentator? I would have went with Jesse at the time. I know he, I, I, I know he quit that year. He finally had enough events over a video game or something like that, and he left. But um, it would have been Jesse. Jesse was great in his heyday. He was so funny. And it's almost like he, he was funny, but, but he wasn't going out of his way to be funny. And he had the credibility of being a former pro wrestler himself. And, and the other thing too, about Jesse is that he could cut, he can cut down a baby face and it could be clever and make you laugh, but you didn't take him seriously. So it wouldn't hurt the baby face. Well put. I agree with that. And yeah, I absolutely loved Jesse in his heyday. I think him going to WCW in what was it? 92, 93. I mean, he was obviously just showing up and collecting checks, not caring at all. And, but, you know, and that kind of tainted his legacy a little bit, but he was, he was great with the WWF. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did great work there. So that's Uh, who who would, I would have given my vote. What about you? I went with someone who I don't think anyone else voted for in the observer. I went with Jerry Lawler, uh, Lawler in Memphis. It was almost like he was next, next to Lance Russell, but he was help running the show. Like if someone got lost during one of his, their interviews, which happened in Memphis, cause you had a lot of green talent, Jerry would cut in and he would get the train right back on the tracks. And there's this really funny episode where Carrie Von era kept looking at the wrong camera. And of course, you know, because who knows what's going on with Carrie and Lawler and the cameraman, like I could see him like frustrated gesturing to Lawler. And Lawler's like, hey, brain damage. You're looking at the wrong camera. It's that one. Like, right on live TV, called Terry <laughs> Von Erich brain damaged. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, who's the baby face here? Who's, who's feeling bad for Carrie? Oh, I, I did not see that one. I would have loved to have seen that one. 
Yeah, you know, I think that pick's good. I mean, look where Lawler ended up, right? He ended up being, mm-hmm. you know, color commentary and doing a hell of a job with Ross, right? I mean, he was out there when, what, like at 1.9 million people a week were watching Raw, and Lawler is the backbone of the show. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. You saw it before it happened. <laughs> yeah, I did, actually. Although I would have wondered if he would have been doing his best work in the WWF, but of course, it's Jerry Lawler. He adapts. Yes, for sure. All right. And that, that's one of his skills. It's always worst. Yeah, I, I mean, he like I said earlier, he has that gift. Worst announcer, who did you have? I don't remember who I voted for, but when I looked over the list, the two names stood out. Obviously, Abrams um, and then Monsoon. Now, there's a third name on there real quick to touch on. Ed Whalen, who was like guilty of trying to get himself over over the talent constantly in Stampede. Yes. Um, but I, I would have landed somewhere probably more likely to be Monsoon than Abrams simply because of the exposure Monsoon had. Mine? That, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And my, I went with Monsoon. I mean, he was, I thought he was awful at commentary. I'm sorry. I mean, his commentary was just, you know, pick from my list of 20 cliches, you know, falling off the Raptors. Uh, you know, he had, oh, yeah. it was, it was like a video game uh, today where it's just like, okay, the, this announcer's got 50 lines to pick from. You know, I, I just never thought he was good. And like you said, he had a lot of exposure. He was on, I think he was, yeah, he was still on the WWF's B show and he was on primetime wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'd have to go with Monsoon in that one. And then, like you said, it was just, it was the same things. He didn't really try to adapt or add anything really new to it. If you didn't have Heenan there, I I don't even know what you'd, what you would have had. No, I I mean, I, I can't imagine what that show would have been like without Bobby Heenan. One guy who deserves a mention is world-class championship wrestling's Mark Lawrence, who I feel bad for a little bit because one guy doing commentary in 1990, that's a tough task. And I know he had to go out there and spend almost every match begging the fans to come to the Sportatorium. Oh, you're not going to see the good stuff on TV, but he was just bad. I mean, and he, he had been their announcer for like eight years and it was like he hadn't learned anything you know he didn't learn how to how to carry a match i mean he I, I, like i said i know that's a tough task but he didn't make the most out of it yeah i don't think he really got named anything but i i can definitely understand what you what you're saying there and, and world class was really bad at that point actually world class was getting better in 1990 i mean because Jarrett had taken over, so they did a lot of hot shotting, but it was usually an entertaining hour. Okay, see, it, it, I didn't, it didn't, it didn't get to me too much on that one. I didn't, I, I uh, was, it was hard for me to watch. But <laughs> everybody's well, got their own different, you know, tastes on that one. Yeah, I mean, and I get it, John. I mean, you know, we're we're getting to a point where I mean, Portland, Memphis, world class. Calgary, I mean, they're becoming more and more minor league by the minute, and sometimes it's tough to get tapes. I didn't, I didn't yeah. see all fifty-two episodes of Portland Wrestling because they're they were just hard to obtain. Yeah, and, and was it they had Scotty there, right? That eventually Raven, right? He was in there at that time, and I know they had Art Bar. Yeah, then oh. and obviously Scotty, they did have Scotty in nineteen ninety. And it was obvious, wow, this guy was going to be a huge star. Just not the way we thought he was going to be. I know. Took Paul Heyman. 
All right. Now, best announcer of the year. I think there's only one choice, but John, I will defer to you. Yeah, it got to be Ross. It's got to be Jim Ross. Jim Ross by a mile, although I will say this. Uh, I, first of all, I think Ross is a great announcer. I think he was a great announcer in 1990. But as the year went on, he was taking on more and more work. He was doing the Saturday show. He was doing all of the clashes, all of the pay-per-views. He was doing Worldwide. He was doing NWA Pro. And there were times during like Worldwide and Pro, you could tell the, the announcing was being done in post-production and Ross sounded exhausted. Yeah, I, I I remember some shows where yeah, he did sound like he was he just wasn't the same Jim Ross as you'd have on a live clash or something like that. Yeah, it was, you know, as as great as Jim Ross was, the NWA needed to lessen his responsibilities because they he was they were spreading him out too thin. They needed another guy and well, they eventually that guy was Eric Bischoff. We all know what happened from there. <laughs> All right. Uh, worst manager. Another one that I think is pretty obvious, but I will defer to you, sir. Uh, Mr. Fuji was like the winner many years, right? Yes. Um, it had to be him. You felt bad at times because it was, it was almost, you know, he'd stop managing one team and they'd move him to the next team and they'd kind of just move him around and he always had the same thing. And I never quite understood. I think it's like a, a Vince loyalty, right? Yes. It was. I mean, Think about it. Mr. Fuji started managing Morocco in early 1985, and he's still around in 1990. Like managers get stale. That's just a, a, a fact of life. And Fuji was still around 94, 95. Yeah. And I got to ask you, didn't, wasn't Morocco? Cause I liked Morocco. He could talk a little bit, right? Morocco could totally talk. Yeah. But then it, I don't think he needed a manager. I think he could have just been Don Morocco. You know what? It's it's the WWF. It's the way it always was. Every, if you were a a heel to be taken seriously, even a little bit seriously, you had a manager. Like if a yeah. guy came out, made his debut without a manager, we automatically knew he wasn't getting a push. We didn't know <laughs> using that terminology, but we knew. Okay, I gotcha. Like this guy's not yeah, going to remember Savage, anything. right? Savage was the whole. We have to find the manager. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, immediately everyone started courting him. I mean, Jesse Ventura, <coughs> excuse me, when he became a big deal, you know, Minnesota governor, he wrote a book and he was talking about I could talk, I don't understand why they had to force Fred Blassie upon me. And you know, everyone had a manager out here or you were not getting over. It really was that simple. Okay. Larry Zabisco was the one exception and he was the exception because he turned heel and you still could have put a manager on him. You know who got really bad in 1990? The guy's a legend. He's one of the greatest managers of all time. And I understand you can, he can only work with what they gave him. But Jimmy Hart was getting really bad in 1990. Yes. He didn't change, right? You know, like you said, they, the shtick gets old and he didn't really do anything new. It was just the same mega megaphone and, the same stuff he would say repeatedly. Yeah. And I, I know, and kept you know him with the heart. Um, I think he was done. Yeah. He was done with the hearts by 1990 bread. Oh, and, was it okay, was it 89 that he left the hearts. Was that what it was? 88 is when the, the hearts turned baby face. Okay. And even in 88, when he had the Rougeos, like I really liked Jimmy Hart. You know, I mean, I, 
I've heard through the years that he got held back a little bit because they either the WWF or Bobby Heenan himself did not want Bobby anyone outshining Bobby Heenan. But Jimmy Hart, like I said, I, I think you know maybe he was stale or maybe you know he just read the lines that they gave him and what else can he do? But he was getting really bad. Yeah, and they had him with uh, was it Earthquake, right? Earthquake and Bravo, and I think that's it, unless I'm forgetting someone. Yeah, and it's it's hard with that crew there. Yeah, I mean, you'll, and you know, Rick Rude got a new push with Bobby Heenan in 1990, and again, it's it's you know, Heenan has a lot to do with it. I mean, Heenan was Heenan was a guy who managed the top guys, and if you're one of Bobby Heenan's guys, you're a star. Yeah, by default. Exactly. I mean, he he had that kind of star power, star maker power. Uh, let me see. Manager of the year, best manager. Who'd you go with? Uh, Cornette. It was it was a no brainer time, you know, with him. Yeah, <clears throat> I couldn't even think of like who would come in second place. Like, Paulie dangerously uh, left the NWA like middle of the year. Flair fired him, and dangerously was awesome. But if you're working half the year for IWCCW and Cornette. 11 months or 10 months out of the year is on WTBS. Cornette's going to win every time. Plus Cornette was great. Yeah, for sure. All right. He was, he was just awesome in that window of time. I, I yeah, Cornette, you know, it's, it's too bad what happened with Cornette and the NWA because he had so many great years left in him. And I, I know he was great in Smoky Mountain too. So we, we had that. But it's like, it, it felt like we lost like two years, uh, two prime years of Jim Cornette. Yeah, I would agree. All right. Worst wrestler. Who did you have? Worst wrestler of 1990, John? I went JYD. Junkyard Dog. I went JYD. And I also have in my notes that if we had to have a worst of the worst, we roll out every worst wrestler from you know the 80s and the 90s. JYD may have been the worst of all of them. I mean, he could not move. He was bad in the WWF in like 86, 87. He got worse in 88 and he was, you know, he came to the NWA in 89. He shows them that he's not pushable anymore. Okay. That's a key word, not pushable. And they bring him back in 1990 and they give him a mega push. They give him a clash uh, with Ric Flair, uh, you know, a, a match of the Clash of the Champions with Ric Flair, which I think is going to be coming up again. Um, you know, and they tried to, the NWA tried to bring him in in 89. He wasn't any good. He quit because he didn't want to do a job for Great Muda. So you reward him for all that by bringing him back in 1990. And the guy was completely immobile. I mean, ugh. I, I will, like I said, we'll get more into that in it later in the show. But I mean, he was so washed up by 1990. Yeah, and they should have identified that and, and known better. I I don't know what I don't know what their purpose on on any of that really was. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll get into it now. I mean, Ole Anderson had just been hired as Booker, okay, and Jim Hurd was he wanted results now. He didn't want to build the product so that it would be flying high in 1991. He lived pay-per-view to pay-per-view and if the next pay-per-view doesn't draw a great buy rate, he's going to consider switching bookers. So Ole decide, you know, he has a clash coming up and he's under some pressure. 
decides that he's going to make a splash as the new booker. He's going to bring in Junkyard Dog. He is going to run a, a really a disgusting race baiting angle to get this all rolling. And it flopped badly. And but but that's why it happened. Only wanted to make a big splash. Yeah, and and that's a bad thing too from a booking perspective to be on this whole you know, living pay per view to pay per view because you can't really build that way because everything's about you know momentum and direction. And if you're if you're suddenly worried about results, if you don't get the results in the first one and you're trying to build, <laughs> if you feel that you're going to fail or have to change or get fired or whatever like that, then you're going to go away from whatever you're trying to build. It's just, it's not good. All right. Getting away from the awards a little bit, but just to give you an example of what John's talking about, we talked about Sting blowing out his knee at the Clash of the Champions, and they have a pay-per-view coming up, and we need uh, an opponent for Ric Flair. So what WCW did, because they were only thinking short-term, they were only thinking about the next pay-per-view, was they turned Lex Luger back to being a babyface, which... A, Luger was not ready to do. He hadn't even been a heel again for a year. B, Luger's future was as a heel. I mean, he was a great heel and a lousy, very insincere feeling, pretty boy baby face. And so they kind of wreck Luger long term for what turned out to be two pay-per-views. That's just one example of how that company was run. Yeah, and, and it goes back to two things with that. Number one, just... Turns should be for a purpose, not for an emergency. You know, I mean, obviously some cases you did, like they turned Nikita babyface when Magnum got, you know, got hurt. That made sense and it, it had impact, but you can't just turn people because, you know, oh no, I have to do something here. And, and Luger, like you said, he looks like a heel. There, you're, you know, talks like a heel, looks like a heel. Even when he looks like he's trying to be a babyface, he looks like he's being a fake babyface. Yeah. Um, so it just doesn't work and you can't keep going back and forth like that with him. But yeah, they, it was, it was unfortunate that they would do what they did. It's, it just doesn't make sense. Back in the nineties, my friends and I would get each other Christmas presents and no shortage of gag gifts, believe it or not. <laughs> and one of my friends bought me a box of old WCW trading cards. It's probably worth a lot of money today, but who cares? And we were looking at the trading cards, and I want to say this is 94, and the cards are from 90. And one of the cards had an action photo of Lex Luger and Stan Hansen. And you've got, you know, and I look at this, and I'm like, oh, how could Luger possibly be the babyface in this picture? He's got these radioactive orange tights on. He's, you know, he just looks the part of a bad guy. And meanwhile, Stan Hansen looks the part of an everyman tough guy that you can get behind. And, you know, like I said, they, they totally ruined Lex Luger with that, with that turn. It was done yeah, for short term reasons. Oh, exactly. And, and nothing, well, I won't say nothing, but few things work out when you make short term knee jerk reaction decisions. It's, you know, sometimes you're forced, but if you don't have to do it, you shouldn't have to do it. And then getting back to Stan too, like you said, an everyman type thing. They could have gotten Stan over as this baby face who's just gotten tired of somebody's nonsense and is, is there to, to, to beat them up. And, and Stan would have been able to, to pull it off and be a baby face. I agree. He could have been the original Stone Cold Steve Austin. In a lot of ways. I love Stan Hansen. Oh, he, same he, here. Yeah, he's, he's great. 
I mean, he was he was part of my very first introduction to wrestling because I was an extremely casual fan, and then I turned hardcore fan in like spring 1986. And this was when Stan Hansen broke Bruno Sammartino's neck and everyone in the Northeast wanted to kill him. So he's a big <laughs> part of my fandom. So in, in that, let me ask you there, since you're in the Northeast, did you hate him at the time or did you love him at the time? I hated him at the time. Okay. I was, right. I was 10 years old and this guy broke Bruno Sammartino's neck and I hated him. And then the next year, 1977, I pick up a magazine and I see that he's a baby face in Georgia. And I was completely confused. How can this guy be a baby face? <laughs> yes. Oh uh, uh, yeah. The, the territorial thing had to blow people's minds. Sometimes when you'd see that. <laughs> I, I was just I getting used to the, I miss them. I miss them terribly. I mean, the territories, they're never coming back, but they were great. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could, you know, you could keep everyone fresh. Like, okay, this guy's been here for nine months. He's going to go wrestle in Florida and someone from Georgia's coming up to take his place. Everything was kept fresh. No staleness. You don't have that nowadays. Yeah. And, and you're being left, you're left with people having to figure out how to keep people fresh without ideas. And it, it's just not, a, it's not a good mix. No. I mean, I, I acknowledge like how great Randy Orton is, but I've been watching him nonstop for 12 years now, I think. And he's just gotten old and I can't, I don't think he's ever not going to feel boring to me again. And he's so talented. That's part that drives me crazy. Yeah. And and they do. And the stuff they're making, decisions they're making with him are just not good either. And and they're making you not want to see him. It's not even a matter of being bored. (laughs) Two things not going with you. All right, most outstanding wrestler. Now, you, I know, like, for me, it's going to be a Japanese guy, but I have to stick to U.S. only. Johnny, I'll tell you what, give me your most outstanding Japan and then your most outstanding U.S. In 90, I had Liger. Just, he was, he was great. Uh, so it'd be Liger. And, and I go back and forth on outstanding, you know, be, between just good work and then flying and it, it kind of, it always goes back and forth depending on the year, but by the time it was Liger, um, us, it'd probably still be flair. Cause he was still flair. It's, it's I really agree with simple. both of your picks. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I looked sh- at the list and uh-huh. I said, uh, you know what? I couldn't make arguments. Eaton's always eaten. Eaton's great. But I mean, flair was still flair at that time. Yeah. I mean, flair had, you know, first of all, I agree with you on Jushin Liger being you know, international wrestler of the year, but U.S. and Canada only. I mean, even by default, Ric Flair and Flair had taken a little bit of a step back in 1990. I mean, he was having such great matches in, in 89. Both of his matches with Lex Luger on pay-per-view were really good. But, you know, then again, he had the, the match against Sting in Baltimore at the bash. It was good, but not great. And I understand it was Sting's first match back. The JYD match was awful. The Sting match at Starcade was awful, although that was not Ric Flair's fault either. But like I said, by but, default, I'm going with Ric Flair. And in Ric Flair's defense, he had to work as not Ric Flair to be the Black Scorpion. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you even do that. You know, you're you're Ric Flair, and you're being told to don't do things like Ric Flair. <laughs> oh, just not. Oh. Yeah, you can't do the turnbuckle flip or whatever. He might have done it in the match. I don't remember the match at this point, but it, but I, I remember specifically we're like, okay, he's not really doing things that Ric Flair would do. Ugh. You know, so you're not going to get the four-star. 
I mean, just more examples of why this Black Scorpion thing was just, it just at the end, it was, it stunk so bad. And you're right. Ric Flair could not do Ric Flair's moves because he was trying to hide the fact that he was Ric Flair, despite the fact that you could tell it was Ric Flair because you saw the blonde hair coming out of the mask. Just so many wrong things. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. Uh, most hated wrestler of the year slash best heel. And, and you know what, John, I want to read you my notes. Uh, it says, I, I have mine. And then it says, but if Terry Funk had a gig, so who are you going with for, for most hated best heel? I still want Funk because of what he did in November. I had to. I, I, I can definitely see that. I, I broke my, I broke the rule of, well, he really didn't do much work that year to what he did was, was, so beyond what heels were doing that year that I'm like, okay, I have to give it to him. All right. Mine are probably, I'm a funk Mark. I can't help it. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> and, I mean, I, it was tough because I, I initially was going to go with Randy Savage because he had the big stage and he, you know, he's a great heel, but at yeah. the same time, Randy was starting to feel a little bit. What's the word I'm looking for? Stale. In the WWF, he'd been there nine years. He'd kind of done everything he could do. The next year, they were they kind of moved him into uh, into the announcer's role. They turned him back babyface. He was like an elder statesman, so that was a good place for him. He was my number two. My number one, I mean, I already talked about Jerry Lawler, how phenomenal he was as an interview. He was only a heel for half the year, but because, you know, I didn't see really see any great heels in wrestling in 1990. I'd rather have half a great year of Jerry Lawler being a heel than a year of anyone else, to be quite honest. I can see that. I wouldn't have an argument with that one. All right. And, you know, the WWF, I mean, they were pushing the earthquake. Rick Rude was really good in his role, so he would get consideration. You know, WCW had Flair, who... You know, is not even a heel. Is a heel who everyone cheers for. And you know, beyond, you know, Stan Hansen was miscast as a heel. I, I don't know what WCW is doing. <laughs> We've gone over yeah. that. Yeah, it's just random booking one hundred and one. You know, <laughs> really. Okay, most popular wrestler of the year slash best babyface. Who did you go with? Oh, um, my my original pick was was in Japan. So you know, I you'd probably you have go to go Hogan. I went with Masawa. I could see that definitely in 1990. Yeah, that's what I went with. Um, Taking off the mask and screaming. What's that? Taking off the mask and screaming, I am a Sawa! Yeah, exactly. And then the big one with Jumbo. Um, uh, You you probably have to go back to Hogan because at the time he was still still Hogan and and mattered. Yeah, he was Hogan. He was Hogan six years in, but he was still, I mean, he was still Hogan. He was still good at what he did. Uh, I ultimately went with Warrior. It's right here in my notes. Not a good year for baby faces. Um, (laughs) You've got Sting in contention, but Sting ultimately flopped. I don't think it was all his fault, but some of it was. I mean, had they not turned Flair, you know, they turned him in February, but if they had not turned Flair, he would have won easily. Um yeah, I went with Warrior because he was like, the, yeah, again, for the same reasons I go with him as most charismatic. I mean, okay. I, you don't know why, but he's over. The fans ate him up. I've said this on the show before, but, you know, he kind of like Sting. He kind of flopped his champ. 
but I can tell you why it's because the WWF did not push him correctly. They should have pushed him as their number one guy. No questions asked. Instead, it was like, well, Hogan's still number one. This guy's kind of one B and he didn't get older. Hogan, Hogan was in the way. Yes. They, um, and, and you brought up a good point. This is another really bad booking idea. So you're putting over somebody who's supposed to become your top guy. And the minute he wins, it's that the guy he just beat became somehow immortal. Mm-hmm. You, you that, sound that, like me 30 years ago. Yeah. It's like, how do you do that? You, you've just crowned warrior. You're expecting him to carry your company. And you're going to say that somehow through the loss, Hulk Hogan has become immortal and a legend of all time and all this other stuff. And you focused on his loss rather than the baby face who won. That and is a that, good point. I, I, I didn't understand at the time. I, I was impressed just with the match that they had, but it, you know, you, you're, you're kind of just stunned. That's how I was. I was, Oh my God, they just threw away warrior, even though he had just won the match. And I yeah. don't understand that. I mean, I know Hogan was making a movie and they wanted to get the title off of him, but there was also, you know, houses were down Hulk Hulkamania was running out of steam and it was time to at least try the new thing. And warrior had been over with that company for two years. The fans saw Hogan and warrior as a dream match. They accepted the result. Okay. They accepted the result of warrior being the new champion. And it's like the WWF went out and ruined it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Shooting yourself in a foot to say the least. All right. Worst feud. Gee, I wonder what this one's going to be. John, what did you pick? <laughs> uh, Flair versus Junkyard Dog. It's just, it was bad. And you could sit there and maybe consider the Scorpion feud, but I, I want Flair Junkyard Dog just because the match quality was bad. The whole premise of the feud was bad. It just, it just was bad. I went with Flair versus Junkyard Dog. And I'll tell, I'll tell you guys something. This is very important. Okay. You can watch the old world championship wrestlings where Arn Anderson would call Rocky King boy. Okay. And you might say, say, wow, people were messed up back then. No, everyone was appalled. I mean, we were, everyone was absolutely appalled and not just, you know, me and my friends. I mean, if you got the observer, everyone, everyone's reaction to that was like, what the fuck are they doing how does that get on wtbs by the way yeah i that whole thing a lot of things that year were just in wrestling wrestling's always had that history to some degree of doing this sort of stuff but just that year in general was you know that feud then you had the confederate flag flying around and the stuff they did with rocky king i i it's that's one of those things that you know makes you embarrassed as a fan yeah I was very embarrassed and, and I was outraged to the point where by the time when that, by the time that angle aired, okay, I had already purchased a ticket for the great American bash in Baltimore, bought my plane ticket and everything. And I didn't go, I went to Baltimore, but I didn't go to the show. I'm like, I am not going to be part of this because the, the whole thing with, you know, the, the whole race baiting angle was such a turnoff that I'm like, I'm not, I'm not being part of this promotion. I'll go to Baltimore and I'll hang out with my friends. And I'll do something Saturday night while the show's going on. And that's what I did. Yeah. I, I don't blame you at all. I didn't, I didn't go to any of their live shows at that window in that window of time. 
I'm trying to think how often they even ran in this area, but yeah, it's it's embarrassing and, and outrageous that that stuff went on. Yeah, and the, the next time I went to a WCW event, unless I'm forgetting one, and I don't think I am, actually, you know what? I planned on going to the January. 11th 1991 show at the Meadowlands but by that time the angle that angle was long over and Oli was gone I wound up not going to that but I didn't permanently boycott WCW but I temporarily did based on that angle it was just so sickening that yeah you know there it's 1990 and here we are doing race baiting angles it was it was ridiculous yeah it's yeah it it, it was it was bad and and, and then and then you have they're doing that, and then you have baby faces with Confederate flags, and it just it's it's unfortunate. You know the the Confederate flag thing in 1990. It wasn't as bad, although it was getting there. You know, I, I mean, culture changes over time. I don't think, and maybe it's because I know I knew Tracy Smothers a little bit. I mean, I know Tracy's oh, yeah. a good guy. I know he's not a racist. I know it's just oh, yeah. costuming, and you know. But looking back on it, it, it's bad for the baby faces to to be like that. I mean, right? I, oh yeah, I, and, that, and that's let me say this: it's not a reflection on the talent because um, you know the company has the ownership of what their costuming is and all this other stuff. To where the company should say, you know, no, this doesn't happen, that doesn't happen, whatever it would be. It, yeah, so it's not really a reflection on the talent. It's just, and, and like you said too, back then the the stigma on that wasn't there as, as much. I mean, it was just a few years after what they're still Dukes of Hazard, right? Yeah. So yeah, the stigma wasn't as bad. It's just, you'd, you'd think from a corporate responsibility, somebody would have said, you know, no, this isn't really good. And, and run with Southern boys and just they're Southern boys. Yeah. They eventually did that. They, they moved them to Wyoming yeah. and put these, put them in these weird Brown outfits. I, I don't even understand, but anyway, yeah. uh, but you know what? Like you say, like, it's not a talent thing. Like I get that on some level, like, but if I'm Arn Anderson, I'm like, I'd be telling Oli, if Oli said, you know, look, go out there and, and call him boy or whatever. I would be like, no, I'm not doing it. You know I mean? It's, oh yeah, that is fair. And people can, can compare wrestling i once had a conversation on a message board with the late mark nolte and mark made a really good point like we were talking about uh men hitting women on wrestling and i'm like well you know i once when i saw urban cowboy on tv the bad guy in the movie smacked around deborah winger i'm like you know if it's in the script you just do it and mark made a really good point he was right He's like, there's a difference between wrestling and the movies and wrestling. It's, it's not a, you know, it's not, it's a pseudo sport. It's somewhere between entertainment and sports. Right. And if you're trying to make it a sport, let's say I'm watching baseball or football and someone's calling an African-American boy, like pretty soon I'm going to get turned off and stop watching that. It is different than a movie. And you know, they absolutely, they absolutely should not have done any of the stuff that they did. I don't know how it ended up, you know, airing on WTBS, which not to be, get political, it's just well known. They're left of center. So I don't know how it got through all of those filters and no one said, you know, no to Ole Anderson and his junkyard dog slash Rocky King angles. Yeah. 
and I think part of it might be in is that maybe TBS they didn't they cared but they didn't care. It was kind of like just a source of ratings. So nobody they're kind of like this little offshoot of you know Ted had gotten it by then. So oh they're just there, but people maybe weren't paying attention. I don't know. You think there would have been <laughs> standard and practices involved, but I don't think so. And I I understand standards and practices at some you know they can be overbearing. I get that, but. This was the time where it's just like, okay, where are you guys? Yeah, exactly. All right. We did not do best feud of the year. I went a little bit out of order. John, in your opinion, what was the best feud of 1990? This is a hard pick because, you know, I went with a Japan feud. But, you know, and I hate, I, I probably would have went with Flair Sting. I would have considered the Adams and Austin feud, though. That's mine. That's my pick. Okay. That makes sense because what I saw of that one was more like just a compilation thing as opposed to having the whole WCCW broadcast or whatever. I saw pieces of that and and that seemed to be a a decent feud. Austin was obviously really good at even at that point. So yeah, I understand that one. I mean, number one, there is not a a feud in the WWF or NWA that I really liked the whole year. Lawler and the snowman, which we talked about, earlier i mean that never got off the ground um it, it turned out it was a a fake angle but then snowman wanted to make it a real angle and got his lawyer involved and the whole thing was a friggin' mess but that, that that had potential but it never got off the ground uh i mean adams and austin was you know welcome to the the future of wrestling whether you like it or not the angle was that steve austin was chris adams student at chris adams wrestling school he was his number one student and believe me, Chris paraded Steve around, you know, as a commercial for his wrestling school, practically. Then Austin turns on Adams and wait, Chris Adams' ex-wife is now with Steve Austin on television. So now we've got Chris Adams' current wife involved to cancel that out. And the whole feud was just wild. And I, we'd never seen anything like it before. And I mean, welcome to the future of wrestling. Yes. And we got to see what Chris Adams in a, in a gi, right? His karate outfit. Wasn't there a match or something? I remember that. <laughs> they did have a kendo stick match and, and Chris wore his gi. Yes. Yeah. So I think Austin had a football uh, uniform, right? A North, Texas State like uni- a North Texas State football uniform form versus the gi. I know which one I'm picking. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to go to the other karate gi, but um, yeah, that I remember that one. I remember, I, I remember seeing that. Um, yeah. So yeah, good stuff. I, I could I could see the vote for that one for sure. I mean, you know, and, and it's feud of the year, and you're like, oh my god, it's taking place in a barn in Dallas. But they <laughs> had syndicated TV, so that there's that, and there was just nothing from the WWF or, or WCW that I liked. If I had to pick a, a major feud from one of those promotions, I think I would go Rick Rude against the Ultimate Warrior, but I didn't love that feud. Right. Yeah. And you know, Rude always got the best out of Warrior for some reason. He just, he knew how to get the best out of that guy. Yeah. Rick, Rick Rude was a talented dude. All right. We did worst match of the year. What was match of the year? Now I had two categories, John, and I should have explained this to you earlier. We had best match, but then there's match of the year. Like, which would you go for best match of the year? Number one. Well, in the U S it would be, it would be my express and Southern boys for, for best match. It was a good match. Um, that was on the uh, the bash. Um, yeah, the, that one I liked. Then you said what? The other one was, or do you want to go to your best match first? 
Well, you know what? I'll go best match, and I will agree with you that the Midnight Express and the Southern Boys in Baltimore, the, the show I refused to attend, I missed a five-star match. I mean, I, I got home, I watched, I heard about it when everyone came back, that we have a match of the year candidate. Meltzer gave it five stars. I probably would have given it like four and a half stars, but it was a great, great match. And, I, and as far as United States in the ring, that was the best match of the year. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. If we wanted to go international, it would be Naoki Sano against Jushin Liger. Yes, uh, that was <laughs> awesome. That was the match. I think Liger had his mask ripped and good stuff. Yeah, well, Sano never really took off, though. That was a disappointment. Yeah, yeah. He, he, um, that was uh, kind of like the pinnacle for him. And I would see somebody arguing the Jumbo versus Masawa match, too, as, as a possible best match, too, because that had the storyline of Masawa you know, getting the pinfall. Yeah, that had, you're right. That had the storyline coming into it. And that was, a, it was a great match in the ring. Anyway, it's just like, if I, if I wanted to start cold, it would be Sano versus Liger. Yeah, I do think that, I think that match, if somebody didn't have the history behind it, would probably be the one they'd think was better. Just simply because the, you know, the moves, the mask, the whole thing. I, I could see that one being the pick. Yeah. All right. Match of the year. I think this was kind of obvious. Oh, Hogan Warrior, probably. It's got to be. I mean, they sold out the Sky Dome. Yeah, and how much, didn't they work on that match for a week or two with with Patterson? Didn't Patterson pretty much plot that whole thing out? I either had not heard that or it's been 30 years and I've forgotten it. But I'll tell you what, that makes total sense because you've got Hogan, who was limited, and then you've got Warrior, who can't do anything. And they had a fantastic match. Yeah, the, uh, the story I heard was was that Patterson had kind of plotted it out. They worked it through, and, and obviously Hogan still had to do a lot. You know, you can't just run the match, move. You know, move by move by move by move. Hogan had to know. You know, when do I need to let Warrior? You know, relax for a minute and get his breath because he's he blows up. Why he blows up before he gets to the ring? So Hogan had to kind of carry it and just keep the flow going the right way. But yeah, I think they had a script that they kind of worked to that Patterson had worked, worked out for them. Well, I mean, it, it's their WrestleMania match. It's, you know, their WrestleMania obviously is the WWF Super Bowl, and they got away with having a couple of stinker main events. Like, you know, Hogan Andre was not that good. Nothing on WrestleMania four was any good. And I think, I think they got to the point where like, all right, you know, if this is going to be, our, you know, pinnacle thing, even though it, it, Warrior didn't get there on wrestling ability, they can't put on a stinker. But not only did they not put on a stinker, I was really impressed with that match. Yeah, it, it's at the time I was blown away by it. You know, it's not like a five star thing or anything like that, but I was just blown away by it because you, you went in with low expectations because of who was involved. And then, you know, it had a drama. It had a story. They executed the moves good and it had the payoff. Of course, they blew it away with with all the stuff they said after Hogan lost, but it worked and it doesn't hold up as well on repeat viewing, but you know, damn, it was really good for its time. And you know what? I had no idea who was going to win that match. I mean, you know, the WWF was really good about keeping the important stuff internal. And I knew that Hogan was going to take some time off to make a movie, but I didn't, I didn't know if they were going to you know, take the big step 
and put the title on Warrior. I mean, you could work or uh, they did the year before. You, you, you can work around Hulk Hogan not being around for a few weeks. And they did it. They took the big step. They had the crowning moment. And I, I, I mean, unfortunately, you know, after what happened, they blew it. But it really was a great moment. I mean, you have, you know, the, the torch being passed in a really good match and the crowd's going crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I know what you're talking about, too, in terms of not really knowing, you know, what they were going to do, because, you know, some promotions, if you follow the booking philosophy of, well, this is what should happen here. This is what should happen there. You knew going in, OK, if, if you're doing this right, if you're going to do it right, you have to put over Warrior. But at the same time, you're like, will they take that big step? You just didn't know. Some promotions you can be reasonably sure about, you know, oh, the heel's going to go over there. Or, you know, this is where you put over the baby face. But it doesn't always work. You know, it doesn't always work. And with this match going in, you know, 90% of you might be saying it should be Warrior, it should be Warrior. But you had that, that point of, well, will Hogan do the job? Exactly. That part I did understand. Like, will Hogan do a job for this guy? And that that's a big deal because... This is the first real job Hulk Hogan has done in his six years in the WWF. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, everything else, I, they always had some nonsense around it, right? A whole bunch of nonsense. I mean, I, I think it was his second job, and the only job he did previously was the twin referee deal. Unless I'm forgetting yeah. something, and I don't think I am. No, I think I think oh. that's it. That might be the only one. I know the twin ref. I mean, that was still very clever. I'll give them that. But yeah, that might have been. And and to me, I mean, that that is such a (laughs) such a convoluted finish. I loved it. But, you know, I mean, Hogan talking about being protected. No, Hogan lost to this guy fair and square. Yeah, that was that was the that was the way you had to do it. And they did it. And they threw it away. (laughs) And then they threw it away. All right. Worst tag team. John, who did you have? Uh, Master Blaster had to be the Master Blasters, right? Um, I mean, you want to kind of go with Bushwhackers. You'd think maybe Bushwhackers, but I had to go with the team that they just threw together, and they're forgettable. <laughs> I, I didn't go with Master Blasters, even okay. though they're they're a, a solid pick because the damage they did was minimum. I mean, they were okay. they were only on for a little while, but I mean, they were horrible. Believe me, the Bushwhackers got consideration for me. It w- I would have picked Dino Bravo and the Earthquake had they teamed more regularly. Okay. They just, to me, they didn't team enough to get it. Otherwise, they would have. My pick is Rhythm and Blues, Honky Tonk Man, and Greg Valentine. And right. I, I was such a big Greg Valentine fan at one point in my life. And he kind of fell. I mean, he just stopped being a good wrestler in 1985, 1986. And now he's out there. I, I was embarrassed for him. I mean, he had he dyed his hair black, so he looked like Fat Elvis in 1976 with a size 54 waist. And this tag team, it, they just did not click. It felt like they were just giving Honky Tonk Man something to do after his single run had had worn out. And it, it, I found it not, not only could neither of them work, but like I found the whole thing to be the the antithesis of entertainment. Yeah, I can I can agree with that. Yeah, it's weird if you think about that. The name's okay, right? Wanting something to do with Honky Tonk Man because he could still get a little bit of heat. Okay, of course he can't work, but that's where you'd want to put him with somebody who could work. 
if you think about it. If you're trying to I mean, save the gimmick. Yeah. You know? I, it almost, I mean, they were out of things to do with Greg Valentine. But if, yeah. if you're out of things to do with the guy, send him home. Yeah, and, and I think at that point they just weren't doing things like that. So it's like, how do we find something to do with them? And they just came up with that. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. Craig, Greg was far from meaning something at that point and both guys really couldn't work and you're going to put them both together. And like I said, the change up of the look was just preposterous. I looked at this yesterday. Like I was wondering for some reason, I need, I need to know how, how old Greg Valentine was. And I was shocked to learn that he wasn't even 40 yet at this point. He turned 40 in 1991 and Rick Flair is 40 something years old now. And he still is the NWA champion, and he is still as relevant as a wrestler can be. And Valentine was, you know, was a year younger than Flair, and completely acid washed. There was nothing left. Yeah, it's. I mean, what would it be like? The road, not caring, a combination of all of it, like not caring, being on the road. You know, that lifestyle was just yeah, horrible. I, so, how do you keep I, up, right? I think, like you said, it was a combination of things. Like he figured out that it's the WWF. You know, these people are not here to see you have put on a great match. You know, don't get hurt. And I think he just got lazier and lazier, to be honest with you. Yeah, and once you get to a certain point, you probably can't really come back from it. No, no, absolutely not. That's you know just human nature being what it is. All right, tag team of the year, John. Who did you have? Midnight Express, just because of the Midnight Express, they were really good. Um, I know the Steiners would have been considered two at the time, but the Express were still really damn good. So I went with them. I went with the Steiners a hair over the Midnight Express. There was not a moment until the Midnight Express broke up that when the Steiners were better than the Midnight Express. Um, I mean, you know, I think they're the greatest tag team of all time. Um, and then, you know, I, you were there, I mean, in, in Philadelphia when Jim Cornette had announced to everyone that he and Stan Lane had quit the NWA and Ole Anderson's name was goddamn fucking Ole. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, they were the best tag team and no one would use them properly. And but at the end of the day, like the push has to come into play a little bit like the Steiners were the young tag team that everyone was raving about. They had the star power. They had the push. I would have loved to have seen a real Midnight Express versus the Steiner Brothers feud. Yeah, that would have been nice to have a, a true feud there. There's a lot of what ifs. I would have liked to have seen Midnight Express in, uh, you know, with a couple of WWF tag teams. If, if that could have ever happened, it would have been great. Just because oh. of how good the Express were. I mean, can you imagine the Rockers or, or Heart Foundation with them? Um, that would be that would have been amazing. I mean, I feel lucky that we got the Rock and Roll Express feud. Uh, a little bit sad we didn't get Tully and Arn. I would I would have seen yeah. to, I would have loved to have seen the Midnight's against the Guerreros. You know, there's so many what if scenarios. The Midnight Express actually did have a good and fun feud earlier in 1990 with the tag team of Brian Pillman and Tom Zank. Yeah, I remember them. Yes. And, and that was good for that had to help Pillman a lot just be with working with those guys. Yeah. And you know, Zank, he, he, he had his bad points, but he had his strong points and you could keep him well hidden in a tag team with Brian Pillman, especially if you're going against the midnight express, it's a good way to hide your weaknesses. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Cause they're going to 
yeah, the expressor is going to hide any kind of weakness on the other side. Unless, you know, as long as you've got one of the guys on the other side, you can do something with. Even then, I mean, you know, the Midnight Express was such a phenomenal tag team. John, it's the age-old wrestling question. What was your favorite version of the Midnight Express, Uh, Stan Lane or Dennis Condry? It was Stan Lane. It was Stan. I liked them both, but, you know, don't get me wrong. They're both really good. What Lane added was almost like a sarcasm to it, I guess is the best way. He added that. He added that count of counterplay. Condry was like the worksman, along with Eaton, too. Almost two guys were in that same mold, whereas Lane was a little flashier. And I think it counterbalanced it well. That's my exact answer, that Condry may have been a better worker than Stan Lane, or they may have been a better working team, but yes. Stan just brought that extra something to the, to the plate, and I thought they, it, was, it was just a better tag team. Yeah, I would agree, because I, I love Dennis Condry, too. It just... Yeah, Stan added that element. All right. We finally arrived. Wrestler of the Year, 1990. John, my my initial thought, especially since we're keeping it to the U.S., is this was not a strong Wrestler of the Year year in the the United States. No one, in my opinion, really stood out. I I would agree with that 100%. In, In fact, my top two would have been Japanese. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, yeah, obviously, because the, the United States had had such a lousy 1990. And guess what? Things weren't getting better until like 1996. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, we didn't I know at had, the time that was bottoming out, you know, <laughs> I had six guys that I considered. My okay. number six was Sting. If someone told me I Sting is wrestler of the year, I wouldn't argue with him, with that person, because all all six of these guys are pretty close. Um, Sting obviously had the run with the NWA title. He had the big buildup until his, his injury happened. Uh, the holes obviously are that he missed four months, and ultimately his run with the NWA championship was not successful. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I know PWI. I think they had him at number one, but you know he's kind of like the bigger babyface of WCW at the time. So I, I kind of get that. But yeah, I, I would agree with with that assessment on Sting. I mean, the, the PWI award is strictly political. Uh, they mm-hmm. got along with WCW and not with WWF, so Sting was getting it. So Sting yeah, is, totally. is te- technically my number six. Who's your number five? Okay, interesting. My five would have been... I didn't go... I, my, my five would have probably been Sting. Okay. So... I would have won Sting. Reverse order. My next guy up from Sting was I had Steiner down. Scott Steiner. I like Steiner. Okay. At the time. I I know it's odd. No, I mean, well. No, I'm sorry. Rick Steiner. I I wrote down Steiner, but it was Rick Steiner. Okay. I I mean, the the older brother of an uh, an up and rising tag team. I I wouldn't have had Rick Steiner, but I mean, obviously, I went with the Steiner's tag team of the year, so I'm a fan. Then perfect. Okay. This is number four. That would have been three. Okay. Perfect. Had it. I didn't have him listed, but he had a big 1990. He broke through as a top guy, a contender for Hogan and the intercontinental champion. So. Yeah. And then two was Hogan for me. Okay. And then I went flare at the one. So what was the rest of yours? All right. Number six, I had sting number five. Okay. I had Randy Savage. 
because Savage okay. was, I, I mean, he didn't do anything that really stood out, but he was there the whole year. He was a top guy the whole year. He was one of the best heels in the sport, very quietly. Um, so I've, I'm, I've always been a big Randy Savage fan, and he's great in the ring. So we'll give him that. And I, I also want to underline, really, there's not much difference between one and six here. These guys, I don't want to say they could have gone in any order, but it, it's all very close. I had Hogan number four. Obviously, he's a big deal in the company. He was WWF champion coming in. Uh, run like I said earlier, running out of steam. He handed the he did a clean job for the warrior. Good for him. But then again, he missed some time. And then towards the end of ninety, you know, it, he was becoming more and more stale. I felt like number three. I had Ultimate Warrior, WWF champion from WrestleMania until the end of the year. Number two, I had Ric Flair for obvious reasons. This guy best in-ring performer in the United States had a prominent role in the NWA the whole year for the first half of the year as the champion second half of the year as a challenger. And then, you know, as bad as it was main event at Starcade, he had the, the great tag team with Arn Anderson uh, and number one, and it's going to surprise some people, but I went with the King Jerry Lawler. Okay. And I can explain this. <laughs> number no, it's one, good. I mean, when you, when you, when you eliminated flair at two, I'm like, it's gotta be Lawler. Yeah. And I understand. I mean, go ahead, please. No, I mean, I know that he is not on national cable and that's, that's a big deal. Okay. But if you think about it, think about it if you're the Memphis promotion and let's, let's pretend it's like baseball and you can make trades. Do you trade Jerry Lawler for Ric Flair? You don't. Do you trade him for ultimate warrior? No. Do you trade him for Hogan? Yes. If Hogan is wrestling, you do. But Hogan was out a lot of the year. Do you do you trade him for Savage? No. Do you trade him for Sting? Absolutely not. I mean, you're you know, and we talked. There was a lot of talk back in the day, and you know this about whether or not Jerry Lawler was ever going to leave for the WWF. We actually a lot of us thought the WWF would never want him, and that turned out to be incorrect. Or if he left for WCW, well, and if he if he did. And I mean, if he really left, if he was gone, like that promotion was out of business the next day. And that's how valuable Jerry Lawler was. And that's why I said, you know, when we were talking about Lawler going to WCW, I'm like, well, I I hope he stays in Memphis at least a little bit. I remember the day in 1993. Denny, have you met Dennis Carluzzo? You must have met him in Philly. Oh, yeah, Dennis. Yeah. Many. I even. I met him in Philly, and then he actually came to Michigan. That's uh, right. Some shows. Yeah, in the mid-90s. I remember that. I so met him I, and his son. Okay, cool. So, yeah, old Dennis calls me up one day. It was like summer 1993, fall 1993. Hey, Jerry Mack, man, guess who's coming to the WWF? It's going to be a Raw tonight. Like, who? Jerry the King Lawler, man. And I, immediately, I'm like, oh, man, Memphis is out of business. He's like, well, I don't know. He's going to make some dates. I'm like, Memphis is out of business. And it turned out that Lawler really was just in the WWF part-time. And he used his, uh, his position in Memphis to get W uh, in the WWF to get WWF talent to Memphis, which made, which made for a really interesting 1993 and 1994. But anyway, I think, I really do think you could have had any of the six guys I mentioned 
you know, probably not Randy Savage as wrestler of the year, but any of the other five you could put in, I would not argue with anyone. Yeah. And that's what I came to. Cause I almost didn't really have them ranked well, but you know, after my, my top two would have been like the Japanese and then I went to flair after that, I saw a lot of equal. Yeah. Amongst the other guys. It's like, you can argue this guy for this, you know, Lawler, I didn't have on my list, but it, it does make sense from an MVP standpoint. If you think about it, like you said, if he's not in Memphis, Memphis is done. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and U.S. was so mediocre at that point in time at the top, at the big companies, that it kind of evens out the playing field. Yeah, I mean, we did 1980 Wrestler of the Year two two weeks ago, and I mean, there were so many strong candidates that you're like, wow, and, and this, you know, we had, I had Bob Backlund number four, I think. Backlund was such a strong candidate, and, you know, and t- just to show you what a difference a decade makes as it should be. I had JYD number one wrestler of the year, 1980. And I've done nothing but bag on him the last two weeks of this show because by 1990, he stunk. Yeah. He, he, uh, he had his big run in, in, you know, Louisiana and then, or mid South and then kind of started falling apart. But that was the WWE, you know, WWF doing that. Right. Uh-huh. Just removes the incentive to work for a lot of people. Well, he he actually started putting on a lot of weight in 1983. Yeah. Uh, so he his demise began before the WWF. But believe me, it was complete by 1990. Who who were your Japanese wrestlers of the year? I had a jumbo, and then I would have went Liger. Okay, I would have gone Misawa, but that's just me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you think about it, you probably would. Uh, if you're thinking about, it, you probably go jumbo, Liger, Misawa before you'd even get to the United States. Well, as you can tell, both both John and I appreciate 1990 Japanese wrestling way more than the United States, which I mean, this really started to be the beginning of the end to what pro wrestling had become in the 90s. Like I had mentioned, you know, ratings were down, pay-per-view was down and attendance was way down. Things were, were starting to fall apart. Yeah, it's and that was this, like you said earlier, the stagnation of. Fewer territories, meaning fewer people coming up through the ranks. So you're not developing stars. You're running out of matchups. Matchups, creating new matchups became who do you steal from, uh-huh. you know, the other promotion. That's how new matchups were getting created because there wasn't a lot of momentum to create people from within often. It was who can you steal? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you would watch World Class or Memphis or Portland. And there would be a handful of guys that you could say, okay, I think this guy would could come in to WCW or the WWF and be really good. And I'm talking like U.S. title good, intercontinental title good. Yeah. And then you think, too, you got people like Austin who are sitting out there that were there and obvious, Cactus Jack, people who, if it hadn't, if it hadn't taken so long for them to come in and be pushed seriously, you know, because, you know, Maybe come in. WCW brought in Cactus Jack and really didn't do much with him or didn't really give him much of a push, you know, when, when it was finally time for him to get that chance. If you'd taken some of those guys earlier, done more with them earlier, maybe you don't have as much of a downturn. I don't know. Well, I mean, I can, I can give WCW this. In 1991, they did bring Cactus Jack back. Yes. And he made it happen. And I'm glad he did. I mean, he's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Oh, yeah, me too. He's awesome. <laughs> John, it has been a pleasure speaking with you over the past couple of weeks. 
evaluating the 1990 uh, Pro Wrestling Awards. Thank you for taking the time on behalf of everyone uh, who listens to Stick to Wrestling. And, and thank you for having me. This is a great time. I'm, I'm glad you had a great time. So did I. I also want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman, our producer, for all the great work he does. I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.